Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm super excited about the guests that we have today. We're going to be learning quite a bit of scaling. We're going to be learning quite a bit of Bitcoin and then also pivots and, and you name it. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Yan Sao. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So originally born in China. So how was, how was life growing up? Because I know that you moved quite a little bit, but uh, tell us. You know, it was fantastic. I had a lot of family around. China's very family oriented. Um, my my parents and my grandparents all lived in close proximity. But when I was uh, five, my dad decided to come to the states to pursue opportunities to do research in in Texas. And so he left. Um, and a couple of years later, my mom and I followed him. So it was a very big change for a seven year old, for sure. Yeah, no kidding. I guess, you know, making new friends, making, you know, new schools, I mean, everything. I guess to a certain degree, that's probably shaping your your personality too and, and dealing with uncertainty, which there's a lot when you're building and scaling a company. So how did that impact you? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great observation. You know, I, I moved quite a bit and I do think it, it, it definitely shaped how I deal with uncertainty, how I deal with new situations. Coming to the States as a seven-year-old, I didn't speak the language at all. I didn't know anything about the U.S. except that my friends told me that all the roads were paved with gold here. When I when I came, I realized that that part wasn't true, but le- had to learn really quickly. I jumped right into elementary school, didn't speak any uh, English, had a very different school system and style. And so I had to learn and adapt very quickly. Uh, but it was really a, a fantastic learning experience. I was in a very, very uh, diverse Elementary school, uh, 98% of the students were Hispanic, were on free lunches. And so it was, it really gave me an appreciation for the, the immigrant journey and how much people were excited and delighted to be in America. I think I really have that um, deep appreciation because I came from, from somewhere else. 100%. The land of opportunity, no? the American dream. So good stuff. I mean, also as a Spaniard, you know, coming to this country too with a backpack, I can totally relate. So so I guess uh, in, in your case, you know, I know that in China, you know, too, the, the culture is uh, is very much, you know, towards education and, 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 you know, doing, you know, good stuff then, you know, in the, in the professional world. So, so I'm wondering as well, because, you know, you, you landed in Harvard. 
So how important, you know, like was, you know, the whole education and getting to the best schools and all of that, you know, as well for you coming from China and, and with, with that type of culture as well? Yeah, absolutely. Just like, you know, the stereotypes, my, my parents really had very high expectations of me. They were both doctors in China. They couldn't be doctors here, um, but they were doctors in China. And, and my grandparents were doctors as well. And so all my life, I've been groomed to become a doctor and to really achieve high levels of academic uh, success. And, you know, one thing that I didn't realize until late high school and really start to grow, grow to appreciate throughout college was that the Chinese way of thinking about achievement in some ways was very linear and, and sort of limited in scope. It was really just get straight A's, get the best grades, do well in school. And, and that's it. And sort of follow that straight narrow path to get great MCATs, go to a great medical school, be a great doctor and just rinse and repeat and do that. In in late high school, as I started to see what my friends were doing, and especially in college, I really started to realize, wow, in, in America, in this land of opportunity, in, in a land where entrepreneurship was in the blood, it's not just about getting the best grades and doing exactly what was expected. It's really about following your passions, developing deep expertise in something outside of the classroom, learning uh, things outside of the classroom, and bringing teams and bringing people together to try to do something around that passion. And I thought that was incredibly valuable. And ultimately, that's what led me to Harvard. I, I, I think that, you know, it was really helpful to have had different passions. And then once I got to Harvard, I realized, gosh, you know, I, I, am, I am so far below in achievement than everybody else here who are world-class athletes or musicians or or whatever, and it really opened my eyes to what was possible. So tell us about the switching, you know, of different, you know, degrees as well, because that was also part of the journey at Harvard. <laughs> it, it really was. Uh, I went in very solidly a pre-med, very much as expected. I spent, you know, my high school years doing science research. Uh, it was really everything, all, all that I knew. And in a classic Asian fashion, um, you know, you can either be a a uh, engineer or a lawyer or a doctor and doctor was was my destiny and i got to harvard and and a couple of things happened one you know i'm just not very good at chemistry i will admit that i i, I knew that was not my my destiny i i never really loved um, the side of blood so i knew that was a problem but ultimately you know one of the things i think i i, I just sort of rebelled against once i got there and saw what everybody else was doing was that I don't want to just follow a path that had been laid out for me since my birth. I really wanted to discover my own path. And that was a little scary because nobody in my family had known anything other than medicine. They couldn't advise me. Uh, and so I really looked around and, um, you know, this, this sounds funny, but at the time, you know, uh, during the fall of every year, there's this campus recruiting for the consulting firms and the banking firms. And I just saw a lot of my friends dressed up in suits, walking purposefully, looking extraordinarily confident, um, going into these things um, that looked very professional. And I thought, I want to figure out what they're doing. So I bought a suit and I went to some of those meetings. And that's sort of how I ended up on the economics track, learning about business. Amazing. So obviously business, you know, led you to Morgan Stanley. 
I mean, you know, it ended up you, you know, wearing also the elegant, you know, attire, you know, to uh, to the office every day. So, so being in Morgan Stanley, I mean, that was pivotal for you because also this this allowed you to to meet Robert Gutman, right? So with yeah. with whom you would end up working with, but it took you a little bit. It took you a little bit because you know, right after Morgan Stanley, which which you actually got to experience the financial crisis there, yeah. you ended up going back to Harvard to do your MBA. And it was, you know, kind of like right after Harvard where you received that phone call from Robert that they kind of like changed everything. So how was that for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I joined Morgan Stanley after school be, uh, to be a trader, which I knew nothing about except, you know, what I saw in the, on TV about people shouting in the pits. And it, it, it sounded exciting, but also terrifying. And I was incredibly shy um, throughout my childhood, throughout college, just very, very shy, very, very quiet, um, hated talking to people. And I thought, boy, this would really challenge me being in the midst of an extremely male-dominated profession, having to stand up and 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 um, be aggressive. And so I chose it. And I also chose it because I knew I would meet really wonderful, smart people. So I, I went to Morning Stanley. It was two wonderful years, had incredible mentors, including like you mentioned, Robbie Gutman, um, who ultimately led me to Stone Ridge and Nidig. But it was during the financial crisis, and it was a tough time um, for being on Wall Street generally. I always wanted to be in finance. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was exciting. Certainly, you know, my first year, I made more money than my parents had ever made combined. And that was incredible to feel like I can start to provide for my family. But after a couple of years, I, I realized, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing this for other than, you know, it's fun. I'm collecting a paycheck, but ultimately, am I building something that is lasting that I can point to with pride and say, like, I was part of that. I built that. And it, it didn't feel like I had that opportunity at Morgan Stanley as wonderful uh, of a place as it was. And so I went to uh, business school really to to figure out again, all right, well, I reset my life once from pre-med to finance. Let me figure out how to reset my life again and see what, what, what do I mean by I want to build something lasting? How do I go about doing that? And so went to business school, it met a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs, um, became a consultant to really learn just basics about business. How do I tell a story? How do I uh, convince people to believe in the message that I am trying to share? And um, after a year or so, Robbie called me. We had been in touch and said, hey, I'm starting this company called Stone Ridge with a gentleman named Ross Stevens, who's the founder of Stone Ridge. And we're looking to build a really different kind of financial services firm whose mission is financial security for all. And the values of Stone Ridge are focus, be humble, and be kind. I love which it. You know, it's it's I, I didn't think there were financial services companies with that kind of value system. And I thought this is something that I can really get behind. It leverages my skills and I believe in it and I'm passionate about it. So I quit my job at, at BCG and um, moved to New York to to start this with them. Uh, it was a little bit scary. Again, entrepreneurship is not something that runs in typical Asian families. And right. my parents said, well, are you sure you want to give up your great um, stable job? But it was it was really an incredible experience. I joined with no job description. They basically said, you will come and do things and we will figure it out together. 
And to me, that was so much fun. So then how were the early days like of Stone Ridge? Uh, it was it was the most fun, probably the most stressful, most dynamic I, I, I've ever felt. You know, I say I literally quit my job on a Friday, moved all my stuff from D.C. to New York over the weekend and started on Monday and just worked straight for about a year and a half. We had to do everything. We had to set up the office, build the monitors, get the printers. I, I designed our, our you know, website and I designed our business cards and we had a really ambitious goal. So we launched, we, we officially moved into our offices end of September in 2012. And we wanted to launch the first fund um, to offer to financial uh, uh, investors in February. So less than five months away. And then we wanted to launch our second fund two months after that in April. And so it, we had a small team, about 13, 14 people. And so it was just a mad sprint um, to build all the materials, build the relationships, go out to talk to investors and do the fundraising. And we got to February 1st, managed to launch our first fund. It was a reinsurance fund. Um, reinsurance is insurance for insurance companies. And we the, the fund for the first time ever allowed normal investors to buy in mutual fund format an index fund of what are known as catastrophe bonds. These are bonds that are indexed to whether a hurricane happened or earthquake happened. It's a really interesting novel uh, source of returns that is completely uncorrelated to stocks and bonds. And we loved it that we were able to provide this fund um, and this access to not just you know, hedge funds and pensions and endowments, institutional investors, but be, uh, be able to provide it to ordinary investors as well. And so that was launched February 1st. And I knew nothing about reinsurance when I started, but over the past five months, it's been all my waking hours thinking about it and running it and ultimately got the privilege of running that fund and building that fund for five years. Because what, in, what, what ended up becoming the business model of Stone Ridge for the people that are listening to really get it? So Stone Ridge Holdings Group now is a holdings group of financial services and technology companies. We have multiple operating businesses. At the time, our first operating business was an asset manager. And it was um, really a very simple idea of indexing things that had never been indexed before. We had a great deal of humility, um, not just as part of our values, but as, as our investment philosophy that, look, it's really hard to be an active stock picker and outperform the S&P 500 index. And so we thought index funds are, are, are a phenomenal um, invention. And we wanted to help people access not just stocks and bonds, but be able to access other alternative asset classes. And ultimately, the reason why we think that's important is diversification helps build a lot more uh, resilience in your financial portfolio. And um, we think that's important for people heading into retirement and building wealth throughout their lives. And obviously, out of Stone Ridge, there's been, you know, not just one, but the different companies that, that have, you know, been born, you know, under the umbrella. You know, the one that, that you are right now embarked on, which is Nidig, but also there was a fintech company that you guys built that ended up being sold. So, so what happened there? Our asset management business, which was our first operating business, primarily worked with uh, uh, what are known as registered investment advisors. These are companies of financial advisors who help um, uh, people invest their, their savings. 
And we work with them because they we thought they were very aligned fiduciaries who can help their clients think through more sophisticated strategies um, like the ones that we were offering. And um, we, we thought they were doing fantastic work for um, wealth management. And so we work with them really closely. And a few years in, one of the things that we realized was, you know, there was this huge movement in the fintech space of robo-advisors and um, sort of self-directed um, investment opportunities online. And some of these wealth managers were a little concerned. Um, they were thinking, look, we don't have a lot of technology to help us compete against these, um, you know, uh, 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 robo advisors, uh, especially for very tech savvy, the younger um, generation of people who are increasingly um, inheriting wealth. And so we thought it would be really, really interesting and beneficial to help create fantastic technology to help financial advisors and their clients with many, many different things. And so we launched a company um, within Stone Ridge, uh, an operating company that really built um, technology to help financial advisors and their clients. And we started off with a cash management product. So, so really helping them. A lot of these clients had cash, but it was just sitting at you know, a, a bank earning no yield. At the time, we were in a world that had yield and thinking about how to optimize that cash, how to, think, how to help them um, do it in a way that's seamless and streamlined, um, and then ultimately building additional products on top of that to help people's financial um, lives. Uh, that was really the goal of that product. And I, I have been running reinsurance fund for five years at the time. Had an incredible team. You know, part of my goal was to give the team a, a, an ability to grow and rise, um, and you know, run the run the business without me. Part of it was I thought that fintech was a just an incredible space, and I wanted to be part of it. And so I jumped into running this uh, company. Um, my first time running a technology company, really didn't know what I was doing, but fortunately, again, had an incredible team of engineers and product managers and um, legal folks who uh, built this product from scratch over the course of a few months. And we launched, and then we uh, reached financial advisors who collectively manage over $600 billion of assets. So we're, we're really proud of what we accomplished. And uh, three years three years in, um, sort of last year, uh, we ultimately sold that company to Mass Mutual, who is a close partner of ours. They wanted to keep growing their presence in the financial advisor space. So it was a fantastic fit. That's amazing. So obviously that gave you the uh, visibility you know, to, 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 to the full cycle. And, uh, and obviously, as, as part of this, uh, um, you know, initiative with Stone Ridge, you had the incubation of NIDIC. And, you know, now, which is the company that is really requiring most of your time. So, so tell us how did NIDIC, you know, come about and how do you get involved in, into, into NIDIC? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, while I was building this other fintech company, uh, my co-founder, Robbie Gutman, uh, started NIDIC, also within the Stone Ridge umbrella. Uh, Ross and Robbie, uh, they, you know, they were the far more prescient ones when it came to Bitcoin. Um, I didn't really, really understand and get into the Bitcoin space um, until the last year or two. Uh, Robbie was one of those folks who bought Bitcoin in 2013 off of Craigslist and 
you know, he, he was always an early uh, adopter. And they were passionate about Bitcoin, about providing access to Bitcoin, because again, we thought of it as one, an asset that was incredibly diversifying. Um, that was, we thought, the what we call the hardest asset, as in it really is um, anti-inflationary, right? There can only be 21 million Bitcoin ever in existence, especially in the dramatic money printing world that we've been in over the past uh, couple of years. Um, we, we thought that that's an incredible asset for people to own. But back in you know 2016, when we were first talking about this, it was a much, it was a very different world. It was, a, it was kind of a wild, wild west. You know, there were consumer apps to let consumers buy Bitcoin, but it wasn't seamless. But there really wasn't institutional players out there, people who can help insurance companies or public corporations or endowments or pension funds get access to this asset class. And so we thought, look, we can bring together the right team with the financial services expertise and the technology expertise and the regulatory expertise. And we can build the technology and the infrastructure from scratch ourselves to serve this industry. So let us do that. So we, um, starting in 2017, we launched NIDIG. Um, it really was, we think, the, the first truly institutional player serving only institutional um, clients. We had, from the beginning, a big four auditor. We built 100% cold storage. Um, we got all the required license, regulatory licenses. And so we really think of ourselves as a full-stack institutional-grade uh, servicer for our clients. And so that was how we got started. And, you know, 2017 was an interesting year. The Bitcoin prices were going up. There was much more talk about it. It was starting to become more in the public consciousness. And then, of course, there was crypto winter. Uh, Bitcoin prices crashed. <laughs> Nobody wanted to buy Bitcoin. All the uh, all the doubters said, "See, we told you, Bitcoin isn't isn't really a thing." But the the great thing is, we had raised really really the first time for for one of our subsidiaries, we had raised some outside capital, um, and that gave us the dry powder to survive a couple of really really tough years where there was really very little business, very little interest, but we used that time. But we, we were really, really convinced that it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when that Bitcoin would be a thing. And so we used that time to just quietly build our technology, build our infrastructure, getting ready for the day when, when um, Bitcoin would come back and institutional investors would come back. So um, it was a tough couple of years, but I think uh, we were fortunate. We had the we had the capital. We had incredibly supportive investors, and we were ready early last year with COVID and you know concerns about money printing and inflation, and suddenly Bitcoin really coming back um, as 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 a true genuine asset class. So in this case, I mean, especially for the people that are listening, what is the business model of Nidic? How do you guys make money? We're a technology and financial services company um, focused on Bitcoin. And we have two sides of our business. One we call institutional finance and one we call platform solutions. So institutional finance was the business that we built first. That is really a business to serve institutional investors like insurance companies, public trade companies, et cetera, to help them get invested into Bitcoin, whether that's direct ownership of Bitcoin or through funds 
or through accessing derivatives to structure different kinds of exposures or getting research, analytics, borrowing dollars against their Bitcoin holdings, whatever it is, we're really a full service shop that uh, caters to to these um, institutional investors. And so that's still a large component of our business. Platform solutions is the second part of our business that I've been focused on over the past year or so since I joined. And um, it came about because we realized about a year ago that you know, our, our first chapter of our story was really the institutionalization of Bitcoin. And that's a fantastic story. And I think it's, it's given Bitcoin and the entire crypto space a lot of credibility that people like Tesla and Mass Mutual and, um, and you know, Houston Firefighters Pension Fund, others have come into the space. Um, and that credibility is very, very important for the acceptance of, of Bitcoin. But I think the, the, the second chapter of our story and of Bitcoin story is really about the democratization of Bitcoin. And when you think about how do you get Bitcoin safely in the hands of billions of people, how do you truly unlock the potential and power of Bitcoin? To me, that's it, it, all about technology, all about um, really making it incredibly easy for not just for us to build products, but for us to empower all the creators and entrepreneurs and companies out there to incorporate Bitcoin products and services into their own offerings to consumers. And that's what we focus on on platform solutions. So for example, we've announced a number of partnerships with um, within the banking sector with um, you know, FIS, Fiserv, NCRQ2. These are companies that really help banks run their operations and their technology. We've partnered with them. We integrate with them so that in the future, any bank or any credit union that wants to, they can offer Bitcoin buying and selling through their bank mobile app to their consumers. They can offer Bitcoin rewards, debit cards, or checking um, checking uh, credit cards to their consumers. And so, um, you know, we've worked with fintechs. We're working with nonprofits. And so really we're working with anybody who wants to embed Bitcoin. Nice. And, and, and you were alluding to this before, but how much capital have you guys raised to date for the company? The amount that is public okay. is um, we've, we've publicly announced $400 million of fundraising to date. All right. Fantastic. And, and how big is the company? I mean, how many employees or, or anything that you can share with, with the listeners? Sure. Uh, we have about 250 employees. We've grown um, tremendously over the last year. And, you know, one of the, the fun challenges that I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs have faced over the past year is trying to grow in the midst of COVID, in the midst of remote work. And how do you maintain culture? And we at Night Day and Stone Ridge, we have a very, very strong culture. Um, and how do we maintain that in this environment, especially when things are fast paced, especially when we can't see each other. So that's been something that we've worked very, very hard on. Um, so yeah, so, you know, we, we've grown very quickly and I think that's been a, a function of just how much demand there has been. We were, when we set upon our journey on the platform solution side, building these technology integrations less than a year ago, I think we were surprised by the demand from consumers. We were surprised by the demand from banks and fintechs and from regulated entities who we thought probably won't be touching Bitcoin for a while, but yet they are, they are here asking for, for ways to serve their customers. Um, and so we've just 
gone after that opportunity and it's been an incredible ride. And where do you think as a whole uh, Bitcoin is going? I think it's going to be incredibly ubiquitous in the coming years. Well, I was thinking uh, you know, when I was little and the first time I went online, you know, went, went on the internet. And back then the internet wasn't that exciting. It was a few pages, you know, some GeoCities yes. homepages and things like that that I built. And I was browsing around. I was like, okay, well, this is, this is interesting. I can see some things. I can search for a few things, but I don't like, it's cool. But it wasn't to me, I didn't realize the, the, the impact that it would have 20, 30 years later um, because humans are just incredibly inventive. You give them this new technology and they will build things that nobody can imagine. Um, and I remember the first time I was able to do a Skype video call with my grandparents in China, and that was mind-blowing. Uh, for years and years, I couldn't see them unless I, I was able to fly to China. And so in my mind, you know, Bitcoin is one of those technologies that is um, similarly transformative. If you think about a lot of the fintech innovations over the past few years, they're, they're incredible, but a lot of it is really building nice customer experience, UX, UI layers on top of antiquated technologies for moving money, yeah. right? Bitcoin is a completely new foundation, completely new technology. And so, and it is digitally native. It is by definition, um, a digital network and uh, programmable and distributed and decentralized. And to me, the possibilities and not just the simple, simple ability to buy and sell and hold it as investment or not simply being able to transfer money globally, but all the different applications of a digital decentralized programmable money. That is to me, mind blowing. Do you think that the utility of, of Bitcoin as we know it now, because people have been using it more like as a method of storage and, and value, do you think that, you know, as we know it now, maybe it's going to be more transformed, you know, like how that utility or how we're going to be perceiving and using Bitcoin, you know, maybe down the line? Yeah, for sure. You know, especially as there becomes there, there's more regulatory clarity, there will be more and more innovation in the market. I don't think regulation campers innovation. I think regulation, clear regulation um, that tells you what you can and cannot do really helps innovation and uh, blossom. And so I, I do expect to see a lot more innovation in space in the future. And I definitely see that um, the, the transformation of Bitcoin as just a Bitcoin as an asset to Bitcoin as the network, right? Um, you know, people around the world are already using it not as a, not just as a store value, but also as a way to transfer money. You know, remittances is, is a huge, uh, huge business. People who work in the U.S. then send their money home to El Salvador, Guatemala, China. My my dad used to send money back to China when he worked here, uh, and it's still clunky, expensive, takes many days. Um, and some you risk losing some of it. And a lot of people are already using Bitcoin today to send money around the world. Um, people in lots of different nations are using it in their day-to-day -day lives because their own currencies just aren't stable, aren't trustworthy. I heard incredible stories about um, countries with uh, authoritarian rule that NGOs were trying to send money into the country to help you know, freedom fighters, and they couldn't under normal circumstances, and they were able to send Bitcoin. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's a lot more uh, 
Bitcoin as a network in our future. So as, as you're looking back in time, you know, if, if I was able to put you into a time machine and, uh, you know, you had the opportunity of speaking with, with your younger self, maybe that younger self that was still in Morgan Stanley and, and going through that thought process of what's my purpose, what am I doing in life, you know, based on what you know now, you know, especially when it comes to business, what, what would be that one piece of advice that you would tell that younger Jan, you know, about? you know, how to think about things and, and how to go about them? Yeah, it's a great question. It, it's, I, I think that one piece of advice has to do with sort of my journey from, you know, thinking that I can be successful just by working really hard at what people tell me to work really hard at. So be a really good student, get an A on the test. That is success. And that is, that is a form of success. But then I realized that was limiting. And then my second realization was, okay, well, I think I can be even more successful by working really hard and learning and branching out and following my passions and doing new things and um, you know uh, really pursuing these additional goals rather than just following the path that people set out for me. So I think that was really helpful. But what I truly learned through my time at Stone Ridge and Nidig um, and through business is it's not just about me working really hard though. Don't get me wrong, working really, really, really hard is, I think, you know, baseline for anybody who wants to succeed as an entrepreneur. It's really about the people that you're working with. And as a as as a really young person, I didn't I didn't truly appreciate that. Um, once I got to Stone Ridge, I realized, look, we've built so many different businesses together at Stone Ridge with a lot of the same core people. Um, and we've built businesses that we've never built before never had experience in and a lot of them failed some of them succeeded um, but through it all we stayed together as a team and what I realized is if you have the right people who are kind who are humble who help each other out who are um, truly brilliant and great athletes in their own right then you can overcome anything together whether it's an incredible excitement of launching a business or incredible disappointment of suffering failure, but then picking yourself back up and building that next thing. I love it. And Jan, what is a, what is a book that you wish you would have read sooner? There was a, uh, a biography of Harry Truman um, that I read that was, you know, it's, it's not about business. It was just really, really remarkable to me in that um, Harry Truman was, in a lot of ways, uh, you would think of him as a very ordinary, average person but he was thrust into the presidency and he just rose to the occasion and he was a decent and humble and genuine person and how he sort of adapted his life, but adapted his own skill set to the presidency, I thought was uh, really inspirational. Amazing. So for the people that are listening, Jan, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, so I am on Twitter um, at Yan Zhao, Y-A-N-Z-H-A-O-1. And um, you can find us at www.nidig.com. Amazing. Well, Jan, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts, or with selling your business, 
you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.